Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Craig Edwards. Craig is a writer at Fangraphs. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Craig J. Edwards. Craig, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Since the last time we spoke, you're now full-time at Fangraphs. How's that going for you? That's going well. You know, it's uh, it's great when you love the work you do. And that's exactly where I found myself at Fangraphs. So, you know, it's it's uh, I, I couldn't be happier. We're going to do some Hall of Fame ballot previewing uh, a little later in the podcast, but I want to hit on some of the pieces you've had up recently at Fangraphs. I want to talk about a piece you did on the Atlanta Braves financial situation, which I know doesn't sound like the most compelling thing ever, but I thought it was really interesting. The Braves last year posted a profit of $100 million. And we know this because they are owned by Liberty Media and they are a public company and you can buy shares in the Braves. They split off some of their companies. So more financial information is revealed about them than any other baseball team, maybe any other sports team for all I know. But how did the Braves actually get to $100 million in profits this year? You know, they moved into their new stadium uh, the year before uh, and that, you know, goosed up attendance to around two and a half million. And they were able to sustain that um, last season. Uh, obviously, having a, a winning season helped them out there. Uh, and they have a, a fairly low payroll. Um, so when you have a new stadium, you draw two and a half million fans. Uh, you add in the $50 million that every single team got from uh, the MLBAM sale from uh, to Disney, and uh, you end up with, with a ton of money. Um, you know, the $2.5 million isn't, you know, a, a gigantic uh, attendance number, but uh, obviously they're doing well in, in their new stadium. Uh, they, they're still on a really bad TV deal, but, uh, you know, they've they've not spent a whole lot on on payroll recently and uh that's that <laughs> that causes big profits uh when you can still draw fans and win win games so every team got a 50 million dollar check from disney last year through the sale of bam tech do you think any team seeing the financials that the braves posted do you think any team lost money it's tough to say you know maybe if if the tigers had been you know in one of their uh maybe if, if it had been two or three years ago, maybe the, the Tigers might have been in that situation. Um, it's hard to know exactly what's going on with the Marlins. But uh, I think when you consider that $50 million, it's, it's hard to think that, that any team is, is, is taking uh, any losses uh, at this point. And, you know, that's in addition to, you know, every team's uh, franchise value goes up, you know, pretty much every year at, at a pretty high rate. Yeah, and you had talked about in the piece, you have quotes in there from the owner of Liberty, is it, that he's saying that, you know, the goal was always just to sort of break even with the Braves and then you make, wreak the rewards when you sell the team. And I think that's the goal for a lot of teams, just break even and then when you sell the team, you make your billions. But to actually see that kind of profit during the season, it doesn't look like they're going to sell now. It seems like they'll just take their $100 million every year and then sell when, for $2 billion in seven years or whatever they can negotiate their new TV deal, you know? Yeah, for the, the you know, the, the non, you know, sort of individual type owners who, you know, sort of like just having the prestige of the team, you know, as a, as a benefit, if, if you're looking at, at it strictly from, you know, a corporation whose main goal is to, to, to make profits for the, the shareholders. Um, I, I think that, 
you you take a look at the profits as generally being pretty stable. So you think that the team is, you know, will buy the team. And then everybody assumed that, you know, within five or 10 years of, of purchasing the team, um, maybe once they got the stadium, that they then sell, reap the rewards of the, the franchise value having gone up um, because they weren't doing as well in sort of the bottom line year to year. Uh, but if they're also doing well uh, on the bottom line year to year and turning a profit, then uh, they'll they'll keep holding on to the team uh, as as the the asset continues to to appreciate. The Braves did just make a big free agent signing. They got Josh Donaldson on a one year deal, an expensive deal given the history of one year contracts. I believe it was twenty three million. But this to me sounds like seems like a bargain to get Donaldson at one year. I know he was hurt a lot of the year. He didn't get a ton of playing time. His performance in Toronto was not up to the par where it was the previous four seasons. But in Cleveland, he had the same OPS plus that he had had previously. His exit velocity was very high. This seems like a great deal for the Braves to me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, a year ago, Donaldson would have gotten, you know, 120, maybe 150 million. Um, and, you know, obviously he had a disappointing year and now he's a year older. And, uh, you know, at, at 33 years old, you uh, can't necessarily be expected to live up to his prime level, which was, you know, basically MVP level. But uh, if he's if he's anywhere near what he was even two years ago or what he showed in September, I mean, getting a, a player on a one year deal for for twenty three million, um, yeah, it, it 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 just makes too much sense, especially for a team like the Braves, who, uh, you know, like I said, their payroll has been low and uh, they uh, had a lot of money come off the books at the end of last year. And so even after giving Donaldson $23 million, they're still under what they started uh, last season with. So they, they still have room to, you know, maybe bolster that rotation as well. Yeah. And I feel like we were hearing trade rumors of Donaldson for a year and a half going to the Cardinals. And I know you still care about the Cardinals a lot. You used to cover the Cardinals and write for a Cardinals site. Why weren't the Cardinals in it only a one-year deal here? I'm a, a little bit surprised. Uh, it's possible that, you know, they made a, you know, or they were interested in something similar, but wanted to wait to see if maybe some other things uh, worked out or didn't fall through. You know, they've been linked to potentially trading for Paul Goldschmidt or uh, maybe, you know, maybe getting involved in the, the Bryce Harper bidding. And, and, you know, it's possible that those things uh, took precedence to where Donaldson was going to be something later on the line. And, uh, you know, it's also possible that, you know, maybe they would have been more comfortable necessarily, you know, going to two years at a, at a lower uh, average annual value, but Donaldson wanted to bet on himself. He liked the situation with the Braves and, if he has a really good year, you know, he's he'll, he'll be in position to to get another two or three year deal to sort of uh, finish off his career. Yeah, he could get a Justin Turner like deal after this this twenty three million dollar paycheck as well. So he's going to be just fine as long as he performs well. Uh, just uh, on the Cardinals briefly. Last year, they had a deal for Stanton. Stanton didn't want to go there. Jason Hayward didn't want to go there a few years ago, and that worked out for them. But a lot of key free agents just don't want to go to St. Louis right now. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's because they're you know not offering the highest dollar amount. Um, you know the the Hayward situation one was an interesting uh, like sort of deal, but we don't know 
uh, for sure that uh, the financial situation at the time was was better for Hayward because the Cubs might have been offering mon- more money before the opt out. You know that that discussion is now moot as you know Hayward didn't opt out this year, probably isn't going to opt out now. But um, you know they almost had a deal for David Price a few years ago, and then the the Red Sox came in and and uh, you know sort of. Uh, blew the Cardinals offer away, which was, you know, close to $200 million. So I I think that the Stanton situation was an interesting one. And I think it, it showed sort of the perspective of, uh, how the Cardinals are viewed right now, which isn't, you know, on the level of the Yankees or Dodgers, or, uh, I think at the time, the other team was maybe the Astros, um, that, that he said he was willing to go to. So I, I think that, um, you know, I think the Cardinals maybe do have some perception problems, but I think, uh, you know, you, you overcome that by offering the highest dollar amount. You know, you're, you're not, you're not going to get players necessarily to come, come play for you at a discount abs- absent, you know, special circumstances. So I think that, uh, it, when it comes to landing, you know, Bryce Harper, whoever it is, you know, you have to you have to offer more. And uh, that's usually how free agents go for for just about everybody. You had an excellent piece on Fangraphs a few weeks ago, reevaluating prospect value about how much dollar value is attached to prospects and attached to high end prospects. You put a ton of work into this piece. Tell me just about the method in determining dollar value to prospects. What I looked at were the the Baseball America Top 100 um, lists for 15 years, 96 to 2010, and then I, I looked at basically how those those prospects turned out, and I, I tiered those prospects into what uh, you know. It's I think in the past you usually see something like one to ten or one to fifteen and sixteen to twenty five, you know, or eleven to twenty five, you know, something like that. And uh, I separated it into more what we would consider sort of grade tiers where, you know, the top two players are generally like 70. Um, a few more players after that is 65. A few after that is are 60 um, and down to 50, which is, you know, an average, you know, a projection for, for an average player. And I, I think that I, I found that useful um, in coming up with values because it, it turned out that those you know, having the number one or number two prospect uh, made a made a big difference uh, in terms of, of the outcomes. Those guys at the very, very top um, almost always become all star caliber players, whereas the further you get away from that very top, um, the, the the more risk there is a little bit of, of a player not quite working out. And the player at the top this year is Vlad Guerrero Jr. He was dominant all year in the minors, was dominant in the Arizona Fall League. And you have him as a prospect value as a surplus of $112 million, almost twice as much as the next next prospect behind him. Why is he so high? I mean, first, we have to consider that, you know, he probably shouldn't even be on this list. Um, You know, if he had come up, if the Blue Jays were contending last year and he'd come up the all-star break, he'd now be off the prospect list. And if he had hit like everybody thought he would hit, um, you know, I I don't think that there would be as many questions about about his value. Um, That said, you know, you look like you look at a guy like Ronald Acuna. 
who came up and and performed extremely well. Uh, and you wonder if he were a free agent today, what kind of contract would he get? And you know, it's probably over two hundred million dollars. Um, and so when you when you compare sort of their situations, um, if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was you know a free agent today, and uh, a team just had to pay a signing bonus and then would get him. Uh, you know, for the next six or, you know, usually it works out to seven years. Um, I, I think teams would probably offer uh, close to $100 million. You know, we've seen uh, Yohan Moncada uh, received between the, the, the penalty the Red Sox had to play, uh, pay uh, $60 million. And that was in a slightly, in a unique but su- suppressed market because not every team could could bid on him and there are you know penalties for doing so in terms of not being able to sign guys in, in future years and so Jan Moncada who had no track record in the United States at all was getting 60 million dollars um it's hard to see how Vladimir Guerrero wouldn't get something like 100 million dollars as a signing bonus I think he'd get more than that I think if Vlad Jr. was a free agent today I actually think he'd get a ten-year, two hundred million dollar deal. I think someone would be glad. He'd, you know, you'd get him till his what, age thirty-one season. I think someone would take a flyer on him just like that. Yeah, and I mean that's I, you know, I I was doing it in terms of present value, in terms of what the signing bonus would be for the current system, where he, you would you would get the player for six or seven years. Yeah, I think that if he were a free agent, he would indeed get that two hundred million dollars. Um, you know, but uh, the way I tried to to do the valuations, I did it in terms of uh, present dollars in the current system where you go through, you know, three years of arbitration and you're not a free agent until after you have at least six years of, of service time. And so, yeah, it does translate into about double that value um, in terms of, you know, spreading out the money. You mentioned earlier that you classified the prospects into groups, 70 plus future value, 65, 60, and going all the way down. Obviously, the further down you get, the uh, more common those players are. But in the 70 range, these are the high-end prospects. The median war of those guys is 11.3. Is that what you found? I was actually, I thought that was a little low. Well, that's the present value. So um, I, it's discounted what you would expect them to do over the course of um, the next, you know, seven to nine years is would be roughly a little bit more than double that. So it's about 20 war um, for, for those type of players. So you're talking about, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four war per year. And, you know, usually you're going to get an all-star season or two um, in there in terms of that's what the median was at. So it, the the war wasn't precisely what they did, but how much that war is worth today. I want to shift focus to the other end of a player's career, to the Hall of Fame. It is Hall of Fame season. We're starting to see some ballots trickle in in the tracker already. It is very early on, though. This year, there are 30 people on the ballot. And it's interesting because there are 30 people on the ballot, but only four have a chance. And one of those has a very small chance. But let's start with some of the newcomers on the ballot. Obviously, Mariano Rivera is the headliner here. He'll get in right away. Roy Halladay is an interesting case because I think Halladay will get in and he will help Schilling and Musina get in down the line, which I think is great. But what are your thoughts quickly on Rivera and Halladay? Yeah, I mean, Rivera is is, is a no-doubter 
Um, you know, you look at, I, I wasn't a big proponent of, of Hoffman's, uh, candidacy. I think that the bar for, for closers should be, should be a little bit higher, um, than that. And Hoffman was, was very good, but Rivera, you know, he just blows him out of the water. He's just, uh, he, he was, he was so good for so long. And then when you add in, you know, all that, 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 you know, postseason work, um, you know, he was, he was an incredible reliever and, and did just as much, uh, somehow as, you know, a lot, a lot of long-term starters did despite only pitching, uh, an inning or, or two at a time. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And he'll get in. The only question is, will he get 100%? And probably not. No one gets 100%. Griffey Jr. missed by three votes. Three people didn't vote for him. Those people might have been purged from the electorate at this point. We don't know. But someone may just not vote for Rivera just because. And uh, it's unlikely he will get 100%, but it is definite he's going to get in. Halliday's traditional numbers, he uh, didn't get to 250 wins. I don't think he got to 2,500 strikeouts. They're light on traditional numbers, but he was the best pitcher of his generation, that generation that sort of separates the Clemens, Johnson, Maddox, Pedro from the Kershaw and Verlander group. I think he was the best of that group, and uh, I think he will get in. I'll be interested to see see how that goes. Um, you know, I think uh, a big, you know, in terms of, you know, the traditional stuff, the, the two Cy Young Awards are, are pretty huge. Um, and he's got, uh, I think maybe two runners up and a third place in there too. So I, I think that that's going to help him on the traditional side. Uh, the ERA, um, is also low. So even though he doesn't have, you know, quite have the, the wins, I think that, um, he'll, he's a guy who will get in. I, I don't know if this year was, was going to be the year. Um, I, I think that. A, a guy who doesn't have quite the traditional, you know, wins and, you know, that, that sort of thing, uh, would usually have to work his, his way up. Um, you know, I, I think that if I had a ballot, I would absolutely vote for him. Um, but I, I think it might take a couple of years, but it, it's, it really is too early to say right now what kind of support he, he's going to receive. I, I, I would hope that he gets, you know, somewhere at, at least 40, uh, if not 50 or 60, so that, you know, he can he can get in in, in the next few, few cycles, uh, if not this one. Yeah, I do think he gets in this cycle. I actually think he's going to be around 80%. Um, I think he'll get in. I actually think he was going to get in on his first try, even if he didn't die prematurely. But we'll see how this all unfolds. Uh, four other newcomers that are joining the ballot. Four borderline guys, really, Todd Helton, Andy Pettit, Lance Berkman, Roy Oswalt. Helton, to me, is the interesting guy of this group because if you look at his basic slash line stats, he's overwhelmingly deserving. His numbers were, of course, enhanced by Coors Field, but I, I wrote this when I did my little Hall of Fame preview piece on my site, is that if at the core of sabermetrics and all of the analytical movement over the past decade is trying to isolate what a player can control, Todd Helton cannot control the elevation in Colorado or the size of the outfield at Coors Field, nor can he control that the Rockies drafted him in the be to begin with. He played in a park that gave him an advantage, and he made the most of it. I would put him in. He, he falls just short for me. Um, you know, you you look at his numbers, and it's it's Larry Walker, except he didn't play gold glove right field. Um, and Larry Walker has obviously had a really tough time getting in. Um, I, I, 
you know, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's a close call, but for me, um, you know, when you play first base, I think the, the, the offense has to be, um, sort of a, a cut above and, uh, Helton just isn't quite to that level for me. Um, you know, he, he's close, but, uh, I, I, I don't, it just, that, that, that standard at first base is higher. Um, and, and it just isn't, isn't quite there for me anyway. Yeah. I would put him in though. I say this, he wouldn't make my top 10 if I had an actual ballot. I think I do give an extra bonus to modern players. I think they're still underrepresented. Part of that is because of the steroid issue, but part of that is just because of expansion, and neither the voters, the BBWA or the VC, has kept up with expansion properly. And I think Helton, given that he's a 60-win player in a modern player, should be in, though I understand the course field effect there too. Andy Pettit is a guy who... I think would get a lot more consideration if it wasn't for the uh, HGH admission and the Mitchell Report stuff. He's the kind of guy with the five World Series trophies and playing for the Yankees. He has a lot of traditional stats. I think he's going to hang on the ballot. I think he's going to hang on the ballot for his full 10 years. I don't think he's going to get in. He's a borderline guy. I guess that depends on how big you want your hall to be, but he's not. He's going to have a hard time moving up the ballot. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy with not a similar case, but uh, you know, in terms of what you're expecting to to see in terms of vote totals, and and Mike Messina has had a, a very difficult time uh, working his way up, and and Mike Messina had a a much better career than Andy Pettit. Pettit was was more good than great. Um, you know, he he's got longevity, he's got playoffs, uh, but but ultimately, I I think that because um, he he just he didn't quite have those great great seasons that, that that sort of you want to see uh, uh, from Hall of Famers. Uh, I'm more of a peak than longevity person. And in, in that respect, Pettit falls a little bit short. Lance Berkman was a guy who was genuinely dominant for a while. He was producing mega OPS plus seasons, very valuable, top 10 MVP several times, top 10 in war several times, but not a long career by Hall of Fame standards. He's a guy that ultimately is going to fall short, may ultimately fall off the ballot this year, but he's one of those guys that would have gotten a longer look if the ballot still wasn't so crowded. I think Lance Berkman and Todd Helton are pretty pretty close, pretty similar players. Um, you know, if, if you look at at Berkman's line, um, you know, it's it's not that far off from what Helton did and Helton was in Colorado. Um, so you know, for for me, I, I think that Berkman and Helton are are very similar players, uh, value wise, and so you know, I, I guess you know maybe he deserves a longer look at, but I, ultimately, I think he's a guy who, who you know, probably doesn't make the full ten years, uh, but probably does get some consideration down the line from you know whatever iteration of the Veterans Committee uh, is is going on at that time. What's interesting is I don't think Helton is going to get in, but I don't think he's in any jeopardy of falling off. Berkman is. I, I think Berkman might fall off right away here, and I think that is telling why you have similar players like that, and one's going to hang on forever, and one's going to fall off right away. I do find that to be an interesting quirk of the voting. Yeah, it's one of those situations where you know you you also have those those guys you know that are the holdover over candidates like you know. Um, you know, Sheffield and Manny Ramirez and, and that sort of thing where, um, you know, they're, they're similar players. They're close to Hall of Fame 
level. Um, you know, obviously they have some other issues involved, but they're guys who will hang around for, for a while, but, uh, you know, aren't ever going to get sort of the, the level of, of momentum needed to, to, to make the, the hall of fame, you know, sort of like, a you know, a Dale Murphy type type situation. Yeah, and I was just going to skip over Sheffield because he has no chance, but I will say this about Sheffield. He's getting completely hosed here. Sheffield, I mean, the defense was really bad. I think by UZR, he's the worst defender ever. He's It's so bad that you wonder if it's an outlier, if there's some sort of mistake there. What would have happened if Milwaukee had moved him to the outfield earlier? Uh, he was mishandled brutally in Milwaukee. I, I don't think he was a good defender, but it's possible he wasn't as bad. But you see a 25% voting for Manny, which are basically saying that 25% of voters are performance only. They don't care about positive tests or anything else. If you're voting by performance only, Sheffield should be there too. I, I don't see why he's not at least at 25%. I know the connection to Balco. Even that seemed to be only for one summer, and he's denounced Bond since. I do think Sheffield is being unfairly lumped in with habitual PED guys, and I think his performance is being overlooked as well. I think in general, of all the guys getting hosed, he's very high on the list. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see if, you know, the the voters could vote for as many candidates as as they wanted if uh he might be he might be higher there i mean there's probably a lot of people who are choosing between manny and sheffield and 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 choose manny so i i mean it's it's a tough situation for voters uh on that end roy oswalt was a high peak guy he's another newcomer to the ballot this year i don't think people realize just how good roy oswalt was in his peak he was really really dominant He's going to fall off the ballot right away, but he's a guy that his numbers aren't that dissimilar to Johan Santana. Santana had the two Cy Youngs. He got bounced right away. If Santana got bounced, Oswalt will too. Great career, though. His peak is, is a little bit better than Andy Pettit's was, but the longevity isn't, isn't really close. Absolutely, and that longevity will keep Pettit on the ballot for a long time, as with those World Series titles. Quickly looking at some of the returning candidates, only two have a chance. Edgar Martinez, who I think will get in, and Mike Mussina, who I think will ultimately fall short this year, but will likely get in next year. This is Edgar's last year on the ballot. He's been deserving every year, but there's been a lot of momentum going for him over the last two. I do think he gets in, and rather comfortably this year as well. Yeah, it's a situation where, you know, he he sort of made all of the necessary increases over time where i mean it's it's hard to see it not getting in uh this year mike messina is an interesting case i think guys who have you know around that that 63 64 percent um you know it's like a one in four shot of whether they make the the needed jump uh, i think it'd be great for him be great for the ballot uh to, to get him off there um just because you know he's he he's he was a truly great pitcher and he was great for a long time and I know that he didn't quite get to 300 wins but um you know he's he's very deserving um and and hopefully he he gets in yeah and once Halliday gets in even if Halliday gets in this year which I think he will it's going to be really hard to keep Usina and Schilling out and I know Schilling is the you know, just a despicable human but when you look at Halliday's numbers compared to those two those other two guys are better. Yeah, and the the ballot's gonna clear up these next few years. You know, you've got, you know, Edgar and hopefully Messina. Um, Larry Walker's gonna be off after next year, unfortunately. Um, and you did you don't you got Jeter, I think, next year, and I think that's that's about that's about it for the next two years, actually. 
Yeah, it's going to be really interesting is, you know, we can sort of look ahead and we can see that this year is going to be Rivera and probably Halliday and next year is going to be Jeter. Bobby Abreu's coming on too. He's not going to get in. But the year after that, I find to be the most interesting because that year, the newcomers that year are Torrey Hunter, Mark Burley and Tim Hudson. So none of those guys are going to get in. But what's interesting is that none of them may even hit 5%. So what we don't know is how many voters at that point will just say, maybe it's my time to vote for Bonds and Clemens. Maybe that's the time where they surge upwards. If they don't surge then, they're not getting in. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, to a lot of the people who have been voting for 10, you know, the, the past few years. Do they keep voting for 10 or do they go down to like eight, seven, six? because they don't feel there's as many players uh, worthy. If if they keep voting for 10, that's going to be great news for, uh, you know, maybe a guy like Scott Rowland or Andrew Jones or, you know, to get some get some needed momentum to, to maybe eventually make it at some point. Yeah, it's also going to be great news for Omar Vizquel, who had a huge debut last year at 37 percent or so. And I think Vizquel is going to continue to climb. I don't know if he's ever going to get to 75, but he is going to, to do very well. It's surprising that he's doing so well, considering Roland and Jones are on the ballot. They were better defensive players and better offensive players. But uh, that's the power of the sniff test, and that's still king with Hall of Fame voting. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see with Vizquel, because there could be a, a strong 30 to 40 percent of, of voters who just don't see the case. One of the things I found interesting, Ken Rosenthal, I think he said this on, on this podcast a few years ago, he said it on TV as well, is that when a player gets close, even if it's someone that he hasn't voted for in the past, he doesn't want to be the guy that keeps someone out. And I think that will be an added pressure. A lot of new voters are coming in who don't see Vizquel as a viable candidate, but still with an actual ballot in your hand, if he's hovering in the 60s or whatever it may be, keeping him out is a different story with an actual ballot than it is with a blog post. And I think um, we may be surprised a bit at some of the people who vote for Vizquel. Yeah, I mean, that that could definitely be the case. I, I think it worked to Hoffman's favor for sure. And quickly, before we wrap it up, there are a bunch more returning players on the on the ballot, but they're not going to get in. The Veterans Committee is voting this year on Lee Smith, Oral Hershiser, Will Clark, Albert Bell, Joe Carter, Harold Baines, George Steinbrenner, Lou Pinella, and Charlie Manuel. That's an interesting group. I think Lee Smith will get in because really when you get over 50% in the BBWAA vote, you basically get into the Hall of Fame one way or another. I think Smith is going to be helped by Hoffman going in, and I do think that that they'll put him in and no one else will, will get in from that group. What do you think? It'll be interesting. I think that Smith will have a good chance. I think that Hoffman getting in definitely helps him. Um, he's a guy who I think had a, had actually a better career than Hoffman did. I think people sort of remember the end of Lee Smith's career as sort of a one inning reliever, but when he came up, he was the, the fireman getting six, seven, eight, nine outs. And, uh, he sort of transitioned into the one inning reliever, but he had a really great career, uh, before that happened. Um, maybe a manager, you know, but, uh, I don't see anybody with a really strong case this year. Oral Hershiser and Will Clark, I think, are legitimately borderline guys, but they're borderline probably on the wrong side and are not going to get in. Bell had a good peak, not a long enough career. I mean, Baines and Carter, we shouldn't be on the list. That's kind of embarrassing. Steinbrenner's interesting. I don't think he'll get in, but he did push the game forward in some ways. Charlie Manuel is one of those guys that's been around forever, 
and uh, was a baseball lifer, and a lot of people like him. He's the kind of guy that might sneak in, but I don't see it happening with Pinella um, in in that group. I, I think it's going to be Smith and Smith alone. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. I think it's also possible that they uh, don't elect anybody, but uh, it, it, you never know with that small of a group. Um, well, you know what's gonna what's gonna turn the tide, I guess. Lastly, before we wrap it up, who signs Manny Machado? Who signs Bryce Harper? What kind of contracts do they get? I, I think that uh, you know we're still looking at probably the Yankees and the Phillies. Um, I think Machado will probably end up with uh, around you know three hundred twenty-five million in guarantees, uh, and and probably Bryce Harper is going to get forty or fifty million more. Um, and I think most likely we're looking at Machado to the Yankees and uh, Harper to the Phillies. So you mentioned earlier that the Cardinals would be in on Harper, and now they're not going to get Harper either. What do the Cardinals do? Donaldson seemed like a pretty good fallback plan, so I I don't really know. It it seems like it could be that uh, they're forced to make a trade. You know, they they could get Goldschmidt. Um, They might uh, go after the, um, you know, I don't see them in the high-end pitching market, but I, I think they'll get a starter somewhere. Um, and with the free agent market the way it is, it, it seems like uh, a, a trade might be more in order than signing one of the lower tier free agents because they haven't had a lot of luck in that middle round of, of guys the last few years with, you know, Dexter Fowler and Mike Leake. You've been listening to Craig Edwards. Craig is a writer at Fangraphs. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Craig J. Edwards. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.